on the life of David, that great man of God. And so we're going to be walking through 1 Samuel chapter 17. Last week we covered the first half of the story of David and Goliath. Today we cover the second half of that story. Let me give you just a little bit of review of where we're at at this point. The Israelite army is camped opposite of the Philistine army. Goliath is one of the Philistines, and they've come up against one another. And this big old giant of Goliath has been going out morning after morning for 40 days, um, evening after evening, taunting the Israelite army, saying, hey, won't somebody come out here and fight me? And so for 40 days, none of the Israelites have emerged from their ranks to come out and fight this guy named Goliath. Well, after 40 days, David, three of his oldest brothers, are um, in the army of King Saul, in the Israelite army, and they know they've been out there for all this time, hadn't seen him come back home, and so David brings some provisions. He brings some supplies to his brothers. When he arrives, there's this giant out there giving his morning taunt to the Israelite armies, and David's blood boils. David is incensed by this, and so he makes some comments right there on the spot about, how, hey, I'll go out there and I'll take this guy on. And so they usher David into the tent of King Saul, and then uh, the rest of the battle between David and Goliath ensues. And so this morning, what we're going to be reading, starting at verse 44, is some of the verbal exchange between David and Goliath as they're out there on that battlefield. As is our custom, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll begin verse 44 through 47. Here we go, the verbal exchange between David and Goliath. The Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so there's that verbal exchange that happens between David and Goliath as they're about ready to come at one another. Um, what I'd like to do is step back just a few verses earlier and see what happens when David gets ushered into the tent of King Saul, some of the preparations that take place, and then they move forward into this battle. So let's go back to verse 38, and it says, Saul, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. Now, if you recall uh, the story earlier in 1 Samuel that Saul, the king of Israel, was head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. He was a much taller gentleman, um, and he was also much older. David's more of a teenager. Um, he was, you know, his physical body hadn't filled out all the way Saul's had, and so Saul's wanted to give his armor for David to wear. Well, you can imagine being a size 32 slim, David, and uh, Saul being a size 48 long, that this thing's really not going to work out. And so he put on, it says, a helmet of bronze on his head. So this is Saul's helmet. He puts it on his head, and it comes down over David's ears. It's covering over his eyes. And he clothed him with a coat of mail, and he puts his coat of mail that was Saul's onto David, and it goes down below his knees because David's not as tall as Saul, verse 39, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain, it says, for he had te not tested them. In other words, David's trying to walk around with all this bulky armor that doesn't fit him, that's not suited for him, and it did, it, David couldn't move around very well. Um, and so David said to Saul, I cannot go out there with these, for I have not tested them. It doesn't work for me. I can't walk around. So David took off that armor, verse 40. 
And then David took his shepherd's staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and that this is what David went into battle with. So he said, I'm sorry, can't do the armor, can't do the, uh, the sword of Saul. I've got to go with the things that I know. He was a shepherd. He had used a slingshot out on the, out on the pastures, uh, fending off uh, wolves and things like that against the sheep. So David walks out into the valley to face Goliath with these, uh, with these weapons that David knows. And it's the first time, think about this, Goliath's out there, he's doing his morning taunt. It's the first time that Goliath has seen movement from the Israelite ranks. For 40 mornings and 40 evenings, he's come out for 40 days consecutively, no movement from the Israelites. And now all of a sudden, hey, here comes somebody. And so here's what Goliath says as he sees David moving toward him, verse 42. But when Goliath looked and saw who it was that was coming near him, he disdained David because David was but a youth. David was a shrimp. And he's like, hey, I'm a nine-foot-plus-tall guy with all of this strength, and you send some little tiny warrior out here to face me. And so he says, verse 43, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Right? So he's taunting David. He's taunting the Israelites. And the Philistine cursed David. Good gracious, I was hoping for a good battle. Instead, this is what I get. Verse 44, and he said, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds, little boy, and to the beasts of the field. I'm going to massacre you, is what he's saying here to David. I'm going to feed you to the beasts of the field. Now, if you were a Las Vegas bookie, and you see big old Goliath with his massive javelin and his massive spear and his sword at his side and this big helmet and armor, and he's got a shield bearer out there in front of him, and he's got this really deep voice. You know, he can echo across the whole valley, and you see little shrimpy David. Uh, what kind of odds are you going to give David? Probably not very good, right? Or if you're a soldier in the Israelite army or a soldier in the uh, Philistine army and you see little shrimpy David coming out there to meet big old Goliath, I mean, are you going to put the money on David? I don't think so. But nevertheless, the point of this story, the point that it's revealing here is that when you have the living God of the universe on your side, it doesn't matter what the human odds are against you. Uh, verse 45, David responds. He says, you come at me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. I don't have any of those in my employ. He said, but I come against you with something much greater I come at you with the name, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, Goliath, how dare you come out here and say such things about the God of Israel? How dare you come out here all these days and defy the armies of Israel and defy our God? How dare you do such a thing? David's getting fired up. Um, and so he decides to go out there and face Goliath. Verse 46. This day, he says, I'm going to tell you how this is going to go, Goliath. You're not going to kill me. Instead, what's going to happen is the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head. And that's what's going to happen. And you know what's going to happen to the rest of those armies that you've got back there behind you, those Philistines? He said, I'm going to feed them to the birds, and I'm going to feed them to the beasts of the field. I'm not the one who's going to be consumed. It's going to be you, and it's going to be the armies of the Philistines. That's what's going to happen. How can you not love this guy? How can you not love his confidence and his attitude as he approaches all of this? And then he says, and then all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. You see, although Goliath was out there in the valley, David also saw God there. He saw God as bigger than Goliath. He saw God as mightier than this nine-foot-tall obstacle that was standing in his way. David knew that as he went out onto the battlefield, it wasn't David against Goliath two guys out there hacking it out on the battlefield. He knew that he had a third person that was out there with him, the living God of the universe, and he was way more powerful than this guy, Goliath. 
And so David, because of that, because of his knowledge of that, because of his confidence of the God of the universe whom he serves, David was able to go out there and face Goliath without any wavering, without any sort of hesitation whatsoever, with total confidence. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Now, we pointed out last week that, hey, look, if I'm getting ready to go out and face a nine-foot-tall guy who's definitely got me outgunned, uh, got a lot stronger than me, I'm probably going to wait for him to come toward me. I'm going to take some more of a defensive posture. I'm going to wear this guy out, let him come across the field to me. But instead, you can see David, he charges out across the field. He's sprinting out across the field to go meet and face this guy, Goliath. He has such confidence. Verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Notice that this is not what kills Goliath, despite what we were taught in Sunday school and in VBS and some other places, maybe in your childhood, you may have think that that was that stone that killed him. Hang on just a second. You're going to see what really brought the death blow. It says that the stone sank into Goliath's forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. It just knocked him out. Here comes the death blow, verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine in triumph. So there's David. He keeps on running. He throws the sling, knocks him out. Goliath falls forward. David keeps on running. He's standing on top of Goliath, right? I love this. This is this guy's great. And he's standing on top of Goliath. He takes Goliath's sword out, it says, and then he chops his head off uh, and killed him with it. So there's the death blow. He chopped Goliath's head off. And then David grabs Goliath's bloody head, holds it up for the Philistine army to see, and he says, you got any more giants? I got four more rocks in my pocket, right? Actually, the scriptures don't say that, but I imagine it went something like that because look at their response, verse 51. It says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they got out of Dodge. They headed out of town. They fled, it says. They broke camp, and the next thing you know, the Israelite army charges out of the valley, and they completely rout the Philistines. And uh, then it says, wrap the whole thing up, verse 54. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put Goliath's armor in his own tent. Pretty neat story, right? Cool stuff. You know, it's interesting that this story is known worldwide. It's known by Christians and non-Christians. It's known by believers and non-believers. I mean, people throughout the ages know about this story of David and Goliath. doesn't matter where you're born, what part of the world you're from. This is such an amazing story, and it's told to children. It's told to adults all throughout the world. Well, that's our treatment of this text. That's our treatment of this story for today. And so that means it's time for us to change gears here and think about that most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, yeah, really great story, really fun. I like to, I can kind of envision David charging out across the field, this little 15, 16, 18-year-old guy heading out across the field to go meet Goliath out there on the battlefield. And then after he chops his head off, you know, he's really feeling it, right? And so I can imagine all that taking place. But I mean, how does that help me in my life where I'm living, where I got bills to pay and I got kids to raise? I mean, what difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, as I was reading through this story, a curiosity popped into my mind. And my curiosity was, what was it that caused David to have such confidence? What was it that allowed David to see things the way none of the other Israelite soldiers did? I mean, think about these Israelite soldiers. They're militarily trained. They had armor. They were much stronger. They were full-grown men. David was not. And yet David... I mean, for 40 days and 40 nights, these soldiers sat there and witnessed this, sold, this Goliath come out every morning, every evening for 40 days. And not one of the soldiers, not one of them, was willing to go out and say, you know what, I've had enough of this. I know that I might not win, but I've had enough of this. I'm going to go out and I'm going to fight this guy. Not one 
professionally trained soldier was willing to go out and take on this Goliath. But David did. What was it about David? What was so unique about David? What was so unique about his perspective, his worldview, that allowed David to be willing to go out there and charge the field with such confidence the way he did? Well, the the answer, I believe, is very simple. What were, what was the focus of those Israelite soldiers? Their focus wasn't God. They weren't focused on the power of God. They weren't focused on the strength of God. They weren't focused on, on the might of God. They weren't focused on the size of their God. Rather, they were focused on the size and the power and the strength of Goliath. And because they were focused on how big Goliath was, they weren't able to think to consider, hey, you know what? If I go out there on this battlefield, I'm defending the name of God. I'm defending his renown and his, and his name in all of the earth. And God's going to give me that victory. But David had that confidence. He, he had his, his eyes focused not on the size of his enemy, on the size of the obstacle, but rather on the size and the might and the power of his God. It's interesting that for the first part of this chapter, in chapter 17, God's name is never mentioned. Never mentioned. None of the soldiers saw, nobody even thought to bring up the God of Israel. But it's not until David comes into the scene, it's not until David comes into the picture in chapter 17 that all of a sudden God's name is mentioned, that God gets brought into the story. Uh, The problem, again, was not the size of Goliath. The problem was that they had their eyes focused on him uh, and not on the size of their God. That was their problem. David shows up with a big God. He walks out onto the field and says, let's get to it, full of confidence. You know, when you look at every great man and woman of God throughout the scriptures, they are different in so many ways. But there's one characteristic, there's one feature that ties them all together. And that is that they're focused on the size of their God. They have tremendous faith. They had obstacles, each of them, unique to each. But they focused on the power and the vastness of Almighty God. And that's why they went on to overcome. And that's why they went on to accomplish what they did for God. Let me show you one of these, for instances, one of these examples over in Numbers chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there or follow along with us on the screen. This particular incident in Scripture is where the Israelites are out in the desert. They've just left Egypt. They've just escaped Egypt, bondage and slavery in Egypt. And Moses has been leading them through the desert. And it's come to the point where God has promised them, hey, look, I'm going to deliver this land to you. I'm going to give you the land of Israel, the land that's known as Canaan. And there's people that live there. But you're going to go in, God says, and you're going to take them out. You're going to move them out of that land. And, uh, and I'm going to deliver it into your hands. And so Moses, in preparation for that, takes 12 spies, one spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sends these 12 spies into the land of Canaan, into what will become uh, the land of Israel, the promised land. And he sends these 12 spies in, and these 12 spies come back with their reports. Ten of the spies have a very negative report. Ten of the spies have a, a report of, I don't know about this, let's, 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 talk, let's stop and think about this for a little bit. And two of the spies, who are they? Bible trivia. Joshua and Caleb, that's right. They, they have a totally different report. And so what I want for you to see in these verses is the difference in worldview between the ten spies who say, ah, I'm not too sure about this, let's hit the brakes, let's talk about it, and the worldview of that of Joshua and Caleb. And see if the worldview of Joshua and Caleb doesn't line up with the same worldview that we see in David. Look at uh, Numbers chapter 13 and verse 27. Here's the first report of the ten spies. Here's their worldview. They said to Moses, We came to the land which you sent us to, 
And it really does flow with milk and honey. I mean, there's incredible uh, resources there. He says, look at the fruit. It's delicious. Verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, Moses. The people who dwell in, that, in the cities there are, are, are huge, Moses. They're fortified cities. The people who live there are living very large cities, Moses. And we're not equipped, Moses, to deal with fortified cities. I mean, how are we going to lay siege ramps? How are we going to topple the, the walls of these cities and of the people who live there? And to make matters worse, Moses, it says we saw the descendants of Anak in there, this race of giants. They were huge people, Moses. What are we going to do about that? Second worldview, verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. Totally different perspective, totally different reaction. Let us go up at once, right now, let's go, let's take it. And occupy this land. For we are well able to overcome it. Other worldview. Verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him, the ten spies, said, We're not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. Verse 32. So they brought a bad report of the land, saying that the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. We go in there, we're going to get devoured, Moses. That's what's going to happen to us. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. He says, verse 30, they say, verse 33, we're like grasshoppers walking around in this land. Everybody there is huge, Moses. What are we going to do about that? We can't fight against these people. Let's, ahead. Let, 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 let's, let's rethink this thing. And so what did the people do? You know the story. They decided... They weren't going to go. They decided they'd rather head back to Egypt. And they cried out against Moses. Moses, we can't do this, right? We can't go there, verse 3 of chapter 14. Would it not be better for us, they say, to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, back to making mud bricks? Would that be the better thing for us to do, Moses? Verse 4, let us choose a new leader. Think about all that they've been through with Moses. And they say, we need a new leader. This guy's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's crazy. We need a new leader, and we need to go back to Egypt. Friends, in your life, you will always find people everywhere you go who are in the back to Egypt club. Everywhere you look in life, you'll always have those folks that are in the back. Let's go back. Let, let, let's go back to where, where things were before, in that back to Egypt club. You and I will meet these people everywhere we go in life. They'll say, we can't do this. This is too, too much. You're asking too much. That, that can't happen. That'll never be able to come to fruition. Listen to me. People who are members of the Back to Egypt Club, God has never used them to accomplish his great plan because they're in the Back to Egypt Club. And what did God do? What was his response? He said, hey, look, I'm not going to bless these people. I'm not going to send these people into the land. They're going to wander around. Everybody who was of the age of 20 and more, God let them wander around in the desert until they all had died except for two guys. Joshua and Caleb, and God blessed their lives. Don't you see the difference in focus here? Verse 7, uh, Joshua and Caleb say, The land which we pass through is an exceedingly good land, and if the Lord delights in us, verse 8, he will bring us into this land. There's their worldview. They're focused not on the size of the obstacle in front of them, but rather they're focused on the size of their God and the promises that God had made them. Well, again, you know how the story ended. They, uh, the people 20 years and older ended up dying in the desert, and Joshua and Caleb received God's blessing and made it in. The point that I'm trying to make to you this morning is that if you are a Christian, God has some amazing things he wants to accomplish in and through your life. Did you know that? 
God has some amazing things that he wants to accomplish in and through your life. If you're a Christian, God has great and mighty things he wants to do through you, just like he did for David, just like he did for Joshua, just like he did for Caleb. But folks, if we want this to happen, we have to have the same worldview that they shared in order for God to bring that to fruition. We cannot be members of the Back to Egypt Club and expect God to bless. It's when we're willing to give, view every obstacle in our life through the lens of a big God, and then when we'll see God do incredible things for us. I say, Gordon, I mean, that's really good preaching. I appreciate that, but I got two questions for you. Okay, let's hear them. Well, question number one is, are you saying that if I come to God with my obstacles and I confess that he's a big God, and if I come to God with my problems and I confess that God is a big problem, that God will deliver me from those obstacles, that God will deliver me from those problems, is that what you're saying, that all I have to do is to name it and claim it and that God will just make it all happen? Friends, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible's saying either. In fact, the Bible says that when it comes to God solving our problems and tackling our obstacles, it's like a three-legged stool. Think about this for a minute. The fact that we have a worldview that confesses that God is a big God that of unlimited possibilities, that he can do whatever he pleases and cause whatever he wants to happen, to, bring, to happen, that's just one leg of the stool. It's a very important leg in this stool, believing in who God is and his capacity. And what we've been trying to do here today for you as a Christian is to convince you to never limit God. To never limit God. And that's a leg that we have control over right? That's a leg that we, we have some say-so in as to whether or not we're going to limit God, as to whether or not we're going to say, I want to go in the back to Egypt club, or I want to go forward like David and rush off into where God is leading me. But there's two other legs to the stool, and the second leg is God's plan for your life. Did you know that God has a plan for each and every one of your lives? God has a plan for your life. And friends, part of God's plan for your life and mine includes the development of character, Character does not happen through success. If you've had children before, you know that you don't build success in your children by them, I'm sorry, you don't build character in your children by them being successful. Rather, we build character in our children as God's children through heartache, through struggle, through difficulty. And it's as we move through those things that God is able to build that character in us. And so part of God's plan for your life is to build character in you God's not looking to just be Santa Claus and, you know, bless, 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 and nothing, and never have any difficulty, never have any obstacles, never have anything to overcome. That's not how God looks at his relationship with us. And so that means that there are some setbacks and some struggle and some failure and some heartache that must come in order for that character to be developed in us. A third leg of the stool is God's prerogative. The first leg being our control over not limiting the size of our God. The second leg of the stool being that God has a plan for our life that includes the development of our character. And the third leg of the stool is God's prerogative. What do I mean by God's prerogative? I mean that God has the right to reserve uh, solving our problem any way that he wants, any time that he wants, in the manner that he wants, and in the manner that he knows is best. Friends, when we go to God and we're having problems and we're going through stuff, what do we want? We know we want God to solve it, and we know that we want God to solve it when? Yeah, that's right, that three-letter word, now. 
I want you to take care of it now, right? But again, under God's prerogative, as he looks across the whole picture of eternity, if he looks all across the whole picture of your life and my life, God knows what's best. And sometimes what's best is that we continue to struggle. Sometimes what's best is for us to continue to face that obstacle and to have to deal with it each and every day. And God knows that that's what's best in order for him to be able to accomplish his plans through your life and through mine. But you see, friends, God reserves a prerogative to say, no, I don't want to solve it that way because that's not what's best for you or that's not best for the plan that I've got cooking. So sometimes God has to leave us in our problem in order to accomplish his plan for our life. So when we go to God with an obstacle, we got a three-legged stool. God's prerogative of when and how he plans to solve our problems, we can't change that. The second leg of the stool, God's plan for our life, we can't change that either. The only leg of the stool that we have any control over is that we not limit the size of our God, that we focus on him rather than the obstacles that we're up against. And what I'm trying to do today is to get you to the place that I've tried to get to, and that is to say, God, whatever limits you may put on how or when to solve my problems, whatever limits you may put because your plan for my life, I'll accept those. And whatever limits you may put because of your prerogative of how you want to do it, God, I'll accept that as well. But God, may I never limit your ability to handle this and to walk me through it. That's something that I can control. You say, Gordon, I appreciate all that. I got one more question for you. He said, I hear you talk about success, and I hear you talk about God's blessing, and I hear you talk about how God can deliver us through such difficulty. I hear you talk about the success of David, the success of Joshua and Caleb. I hear all that, but I got to be honest with you, that's not where I'm at this morning. I've got problems in my life, and they're not being solved. I've got heartache in my life, and it doesn't seem to be going away. In fact, I feel like I'm drowning right now. And I've been crying out to God and asking him to bring relief. I've been crying out to God and asking him, I, I don't know what the holdup is. God, I'm submitted to your plans. God, I want, I want to be in your will. But I'm drowning here. And so I'm having a really hard time this morning hearing you talk about success. I'm having a really hard time this morning thinking about that God wants to do these things for me. Because do you understand what it means to lose hope? Because I'm kind of at that point right now where I feel like I'm losing hope. What do you say to that? How do you answer that? Well, first of all, let me tell you that I don't know what the depths of losing hope is all about. I've never had massive physical obstacles. God's blessed me with good health. God's blessed me with a wonderful family. God's blessed us financially. Sure, I've faced obstacles in my life, but never anything that I know many of you are walking through now or have walked through at times in your life. But I have sat at the kitchen table with a mom and dad whose seventh grade son had hung himself just hours before. And I have sat at the bedside, hospital bed, and held the hand of a dear friend who had just received news about a terminal illness. And I have counseled with people who are on the verge of financial ruin. And in every one of those instances, the people who were going through that had one of two choices. They were standing at a crossroads, 
Either they were going to continue to believe in God and his promises and his faithfulness, or they were going to grow bitter. They were either going to trust God, even in the midst of, I'm drowning here, or they were going to harden their heart toward him. And in every instance where someone said, God, I've had enough. I watched that bitterness infiltrate every relationship of their life, and it haunted them for the rest of their lives. And so this morning, if you're losing hope, if this morning the size of that giant has just got you at a bad place, if this morning you're worn down emotionally, friend, I'd encourage you to look not at the size of the obstacle, but to remember the size of your God. He loves you. He, com- he wants to comfort you and walk with you through whatever it is that you're going through. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not leave us alone. We thank you that you walk with us even when it seems like our world may be falling apart. Lord, may we this morning hear your promises to us that you'll never leave us or forsake us. May we hear your promises to us this morning. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Lord, may those promises just wash over our minds this morning. Let hope be restored. Let our trust in you flood back into our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are the living God of the universe. That you saw coming whatever it is we're walking through right now. You knew Goliath was on his way. And that, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose for it. In these quiet moments of communion today, restore that hope in our hearts. Holy Spirit, stir within us. Encourage us today. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.